so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Strange to talk about a new edition of J.H. Bobbing's classic work, The Church Between the Temple and Mosque from Westminster Seminary Press. Today, we discuss missiology and cultural engagement in our secular age. Dan Strange is the director of Crossland Forum and the vice president of Southgate Fellowship. He's also a fellow at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and an author of Their Rock is Not Like Our Rock, A Theology of Religions, Plugged In, and Making Faith Magnetic. He's a contributing editor to Familios and an elder at Hope Community Church in Gateshead, United Kingdom. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us again here on the Digital Public Square. Last time we had you on the podcast, it was a really fun conversation around your book, Making Faith Magnetic, uh, with the Good Book Company. And we kind of touched on some of the works. Obviously, the framework for that book comes from and is drawing from this great missiologist, J.H. Bobbing. Today, I want to dig a little bit more in on some of his own works, especially this new edition of this classic text, The Church Between the Temple and Mosque from Westminster Seminary Press. But before we dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and specifically what kind of sparked your interest in Bob Inc. Yeah, so I was um, converted when I was in my teenage years. And my my um, my ethnic background is that I'm half um, Indo-Guyanese. So my dad was from Guyana in South America, which was uh, then at that time a, co- a colony owned by the British. And my great, great, great grandparents probably would have been indentured workers from India being brought up. To Guyana, so basically, my my grandparents were Hindu on my dad's side, and so I'd always been interested in other religions. And so, when I was converted, I enjoyed theology. Went to study um, theology at a very, uh, what you say, uh, liberal um, university, Bristol University, doing theology and religious studies. And I just realised very quickly on that, as an evangelical, and probably quite a young, naive evangelical. Even the first few weeks with the reading lists I was given, the things I was being taught, that there was very little contact between what I was hearing and what I believed. And so um, I kind of staggered into the university library looking for any points of contact 
And uh, there was a uh, the journal, I think it was the Scottish Bulletin of Evangelical Theology, they had um, reprinted an article by J.H. Baving, which, which actually is one of the chapters in Church Between Temple and Mosque. And it was just a kind of an oasis. And I suddenly realised, okay, yeah, there is something in, in common. I realised it was going to be a challenge. But I think then, you know, because J.H. Bavinck draws from a, a reformed kind of Calvinistic tradition, that was, it was kind of a bit of an oasis in what was quite a barren landscape for me. And then, as I talk about in my introduction to the book, not just the the content of the book, but Bavinck's posture and tone, I think then really started to influence me in terms of yeah, just as what Bavink says is meeting people in love. I mean, probably I made a lot of mistakes as quite a zealous evangelical in a in a kind of very liberal context, but probably there was some um, uh, the spirit used some wisdom to grow me in terms of how I was interacting with that that difference. So there is a very personal link between me and JH Bavink, but also a personal link between me and this particular book because when I found that article, I then started to chase down other things that he'd written. Yeah, one of the things, and we talked about this right before we jumped on the podcast, is this is a beautiful new edition of this book. And that's one of the things that I've been really impressed with over the years um, with Westminster Seminary Press. Uh, They have a new edition of Christian Theory of Knowledge by Cornelius Van Til, beautifully done. I'm glad to see that back in print. I actually remember when I had it, I was assigned for PhD seminar, doctoral seminar here in the States, and could not find an actual print edition. And even though I'm really into technology, I prefer print. Uh, That's how I like to read. I like to read with a pen in hand. And so I was able to track down an old, very, very old edition of that work. And so it's nice to see some of those kind of classic texts being republished, especially in such a beautiful format that you see here, especially with this Bob Inc. volume. Yeah, yeah. So it was originally published by Erdemans. It kind of fell out of print in in 1980, I think. But they, um, and lots of people have used it and referred to it. So I think when they wanted to recover it, they've done a great job. I mean, you know, if, if, you look at the old cover, if you can ever find an edition, there is some continuity between how they've done the cover design. So it's little things like that. It's kind of honoring the the tradition while bringing it up to date as well. So they've done a good job. Yeah, I think for many listeners, when they hear the name Bavink, they think of Herman Bavink. Um, naturally, especially in the States and well, kind of in the Western kind of tradition, we kind of seeing a resurgence, especially in America, um, of Bavink studies with the Reformed dogmatics and then the the forthcoming kind of final uh, volume of Reformed ethics. We've actually talked a lot of with the editors and kind of neo-Calvinistic thought here on the podcast, something I'm very interested in even as a Baptist. But maybe listeners are not as familiar with J.H. Bavink. This is not Herman Bavink. This is J.H. Bavink, the missiologist. So I wanted to see, can you give listeners kind of who may not be familiar with kind of the younger Bavink in some sense, who he is, kind of his role, especially in kind of this neo-Calvinistic type of movement? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you'll be interested to know, Jason, I was doing a podcast the other week. And as we were praying, I won't mention which podcast it was, I was praying before. And I realized in the prayer that they thought that they were going to be inter- interviewing me on Herman Bavink, not J.H. So I had to kind of tell them before we started. They'd done all this prep on Herman and actually it was J.H. Anyway, yeah, J.H. Bavink, um, unfortunately, he's, he's, he's Johannes Herman Bavink, so it doesn't really help us. But J.H. is the nephew of the illustrious Herman Bavink, who everyone's heard of. Uh, he was born in 1895. He died in 1964. He was a, he was a missionary. I mean, he was a Dutch Reform missionary who spent a lot of he, – he did his PhD on um, the reform mystic um, Heinrich von Suso. And that kind of – I mentioned that because 
the kind of mystical and then more psychological aspect of anthropology, J.H. was really kind of into that. There's something quite prophetic and mysterious about his writing, which I talk about in, in the introduction to this book. So, yeah, he ended up in, in Indonesia, which was then a Dutch colony, and spent a number of pastorates and ended up teaching at the Theological Seminary in Jakarta. And then around the, I don't know, 40s and 50s, he was he came back to um, Holland and ended up um, lecturing at the Free University. I mean, he was at Utrecht, but he ended up lecturing at the Free University of Amsterdam. And yeah, he's probably the one of the premier Dutch reformed missiologists of the 20th century. I mean, what's interesting about him is that you may never have heard of him, but I think his influence has seeped out because his book, An Introduction to the Science of Missions, which for years was the kind of standard seminary textbook on missions in reformed seminaries. Um, Ed Clowney was one who who, who championed it at, at Westminster. And then Harvey Conn, who was the great missiologist at Westminster, he um, drew heavily on J.H. Bavinck. And of course, one of Conn's most famous students was Tim Keller. So there's a kind of a direct line from J.H. through via Clowney to Harvey Conn to Tim Keller. And I think that does come across in the not in direct quotations and influences, but just in a certain theological position, a certain posture and um, ethic, I suppose, in terms of mission. So, yeah, even though he's he's not, he's, he's as you said before, the, the lesser known Bavink, I think increasingly given the post-Christian context that we're in today, the need for cross-cultural mis- mission and ministry and theology, even within the West, a bit like, how Leslie Newbigin's been become kind of a kind of a cult figure or, you know, a very helpful figure. I think J.H. Bavink is similar in in drawing on him more as we become more and more detached from, I suppose, a, a specifically Christian milieu. So, Dan, earlier you mentioned that this is a reprint of an earlier published work by Erdmans in 1966. And you mentioned that this volume is actually a posthumous volume, meaning that it came out after his death. I wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit of kind of the origin story, kind of the context in which Bob Inc. is writing, and in this case, actually speaking, and tell us a little bit about kind of the original, you know, kind of context and audience in which he's speaking to. Well, um, Jason, it's been something of a, a mystery, and I still don't know all the details. So there was an introduction to the original edition by a guy called Pierce Beaver, who was a, a missiologist in the States. And as you said, these um, he mentions in that introduction that the, these lectures were based upon a series of teaching sessions that J.H. Babbitt did in the States. So he did some traveling to America, and but we don't get any details where it was, when it was, who, whether it was in English, who did the translation. Anyway, there's, a, um, there's another kind of Dutch missiologist who's kind of done writing in this area and had done some, um, a guy called um, Johannes Verkowel in his, in, in his own missiology textbook, and um, in the little section on J.H. Bavink, he says, yeah, Bavink gave a number of lectures in Chicago. And um, on the request of, at the time, one of the giants of religious studies, the Romanian scholar, Messiah Iliada, who was the kind of the world authority on other religions and still kind of on religious studies. And he's still, like, even though he's kind of long dead and probably the whole discipline's moved on, he's seen as being one of the grandfathers of the discipline. So apparently... Mercia Iliada had read a previous book that J.H. Bavink had written called Religious Consciousness and was so kind of um, 
like impressed that he'd invited JH to come over. So we think that the, this church between Temple and Mosque are based on the series of lectures he gave at what was probably the Federated Theological Faculty of Chicago, probably in about 1959 and nine, to 1960. And the other funny thing is um, James Eglinton, who's professor of uh, who's a lecturer at Edinburgh University, who who has done the big biography on Herman Bavinck and um, another J.H. Bavinck book that he's just translated called Personality and Worldview. Maybe I'll mention that at the end. He tracked down for me a kind of a some old Dutch newspapers, which apparently show that Bavinck there was an inter, a, a radio interview between. Uh, Holland and the, and the States when Bavinck was in America talking about his experiences. So we probably, I probably think that was when he was doing this, these lectures. So there's a lot, I mean, that's a great origin story. I don't know how much of it is true, but I think there's pr it's probably, yeah, a series of lectures probably in Chicago that were only published after he died. Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, I remember when I first saw this volume is, you know, the church between the temple and the mosque without the subtitle, as a Baptist, maybe this is just kind of my uh, sensibility, but as a Baptist, I immediately thought, oh, like the relationship of like religious liberty, about freedom of religion or something like that. But obviously this is not that per se. Uh, while it's still getting into issues of public theology and kind of social ethics in many ways, it's more of a, a missiological text, kind of understanding the relationship of religions and how God has in many ways wired us as humanity toward a posture of worship. And I think that actually resonates with much of us or for many of us that God has created us to worship. You see this in kind of Romans one, that we can't deny that there is a God we all, but we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But it's God has wired humanity to respond to divine revelation. And we see this throughout the world religions. Yeah, so it's a, it's a work, I mean, technically it's what in theology is known as the, it's a work of the theology of religions what does the Christian faith have to say about other religions? It's also what can be called a theological religious studies because it presents a kind of a, a comparative religion would be not right, a kind of a morphology or an anatomy of what is going on, which for Bavinck, as you said, he digs right down and goes back to Romans 1, Acts 17, all people are worshippers, God has revealed himself, we suppress the truth. We become, I mean, he quotes Calvin, we've become a, a, um, a factory of idols. So in Bavinck's famous phrase, there's this, what he calls the perilous exchange between God and idols. And that kind of grounds his theology. But what then he does is he wants to kind of say, okay, I've done this theological anthropology. Now let's look at the phenomena. Let's look at the the, the religious traditions that he was dealing with in, in Indonesia, be that Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, animism, you know, what we formally called religion, which I have a bit of a problem with, but for now we'll just put I'll put it in inverted commas. And so that's what what the book book's about. It's about as we strip away what we call religion, what is going on theologically. And that's where that that original chapter that I stumbled across, which is um, the chapter's called um, Human Religion in God's Sight, which is basically an exposition of Romans 1, 18 to 32, and an incredibly convincing one in my mind. Well, one of the things we've talked a lot about here on the podcast and kind of a, a reoccurring theme throughout much of my work even is, is what you said, theological anthropology is what does it mean to be human? I think that's actually one of the central questions, not only of ethics, but really of all kind of social, ethical, political issues today is it gets down to that question of what does it mean to be human? So can we, let's drill down a little bit on that. What is the role of theological anthropology in Bavinck's work here in terms of how we understand what does it mean to be human and how God has created us? Yeah. So 
religion for Bavink is a response. It's a response as God reveals himself, religion is the response that we have. So in that sense, there's a very dynamic quality. And for Bavink, the response in our sin is always one of suppression and exchange. So it's the classic, you know, we're, we're built for worship, worshipping the living God. Um, we suppress the truth and we exchange it for idols. And for Bavink, if you put that together, if you put together, if you put into a kind of a recipe, the image of God, the suppression of truth, the exchange for idolatry and mix them all up, you get what Bavink calls um, religious consciousness. So everyone has what he calls a religious consciousness. And again, you might think that's a very positive thing, but it's ambiguous. It's this um, classic idea that people are running to God because they've been made by him and running away from him. They know him and they don't know him. So it kind of creates, that's the theological, the kind of the foundation and then Bavink goes a step further, and this is what he develops in Church Between Temple and Mosque and his other writings to say, okay, this religious consciousness, which is universal, everyone has it, they're variegated various ways that it manifests itself, and there are certain similarities of structure that you can see in all different religious religious traditions and those who would say aren't religious as well. And again, that's the applicability of the book to our post-Christian context. And that's where he develops what is are known as these magnetic points. If you say, what is, what, if you unpack religious consciousness, there is this certain pattern or these certain questions that all human beings ask. So what he does in Church Between Temple and Mosque is outline what those five kind of issues, those questions are, how the world religions or other religious traditions have answered them. And then the second half of the book is saying, okay, what's Jesus Christ got to say to this or how does he respond himself? So that's the kind of the structure of the book in terms of anthropology and then how the book is structured. So you've mentioned here Bob Inc.'s kind of five magnetic points. Obviously, you as a scholar have taken that into your own work and kind of applied that to a post-Christian age, which we'll get to here in a little bit. But kind of getting back to these five magnetic points, how does that help us in kind of enrich us as we think about having rich dialogue with other faith traditions? What are these five magnetic points? And then how do we apply that? Now, I'm so used to putting them in my own terms. I'm going to try and remember from memory his ways of putting it. So he says there's five kind of relationships. He says there's I and the cosmos. So what's my relationship to reality? A kind of a metaphysical question, ontological question. How am I connected in the universe and what's my significance as a human being? There's I and the norm, which talks about norms, law, law the issue of law and standards I and deliverance, which is about we all have this idea that the world's not right, how are we delivered from it. What he calls I and the riddle of my existence, which is about fate, freedom. He's got this great line, Bavink says, that we both um, lead our lives and undergo our lives at the same time. And it's that exploration. And then finally, I and the higher power, which really presses oh, is where all the other magnetic points press in. You know, is there a reality beyond reality? So the idea of a higher power. And Bavik says, don't compartmentalize these. It's not as if people just ask one of these questions. These are all perspectives on the one religious consciousness, but somebody might lead or they might have a particular magnetic point that resonates with them more. Um, so these are all perspectives on the one religious consciousness. And everyone is asking these, answering these questions, even though they're not explicitly, they don't wake up in the morning saying, oh, I'm going to think about I am the riddle of my existence today. But their lives, what they do, um, the choices they make, their hopes, fears, dreams are always an answer to those questions. And for Bavink, there's something quite um, 
personal and existential his view of revelation is it, it, it's a it, it's kind of all these magnetic points are always pressing down and god is saying you know what are you doing with me what are you doing with this revelation and the way that we answer the magnetic points for Bavink is always idolatrous, but there's still this similarity of structure, he would say. So here in a few minutes, I want to talk about kind of applying some of that, because I think there's some interesting parallels that we'll unpack in a minute. But one of the things that I'm struck throughout all of Bavink's writings, specifically even this volume, and it's noted in a lot of uh, that, whether it's the endorsements or in introductions or preface, whatever, when people read his work or engage it, there's this kind of ironic spirit there's this dignity that, he, and you don't see that, especially in a lot of contemporary culture when we engage other religions, but especially those who don't have a religious identification, quote, secular. And that's a really loaded term that we can unpack here in a minute. But it's, he, he notes in the kind of toward the end of the book that the church cannot avoid dialogue with other religions. And by extension, we can kind of apply that to even kind of a post-Christian culture. But as many have noted, that kind of ironic, kind of humble uh, spirit that he has, I wanted to see if you could help kind of unpack what role that plays in his work and then how we can kind of apply even that principle today of almost this like epistemic humility uh, that we engage with other people. I mean, some of it, as you know, Jason, I think as you old, I mean, some of it is just the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life in that he just seems, he seems to have been a very gentle human being who was inquisitive and curious about the other. What I love about him is that theologically, I mean, you could say he's hardcore. I mean, this is this is kind of he's very clear on other religions. This is idolatry. People need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And so, in that sense, it's a really I, I love the theology, but it's encased in a kind of what well, the kind of one Peter three gentleness and respect, without being soft, without compromising. And you know what? I think it I think it stems from just a man who understands grace. He's got these great lines. I don't know whether it's in this book or else, where he says, you know. You know, the, he talks about the warm undertone of love, that the, the wounds which I inflict on the other by the gospel, I need to know that they've been in, inflicted on me first. I am, I am just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And that takes away any kind of pride or vainglory or malice. And I think added to that, he was a scholar in the sense that he really wanted to learn the intricacies of the other, to listen carefully. You know, as Paul wanders around the objects of worship, J.H. Bavik wanders around in, in Indonesia. I think also he was very much into very early on contextualization and indigenization. Here's a funny story. Um, last year, I was preaching in um, a church in Belfast and a, a, a little 80-year-old lady, must be a lady in her 80s, come, 90s maybe, came up to me. And she said, oh, I can't believe you're talking about J.H. Bavik. I'm a retired Dutch missionary. And when I was growing up, he came to preach at my church. I remember him preaching. And even then, in what must have been the 1940s and 50s, within the Dutch Reformed denomination he was part of, I think he was seen as quite a controversial figure because he was talking about indigenous populations trying self-theologizing. And he was quite radical in some of the, the traditional religious practices, what he calls in another book, possessio, taking that and possessing it for Christ. So I think even though he was this gentle, quiet man, he was quite radical at the time. He was seen with some suspicion because he wanted to contextualize. And again, I think that's why that resonates with a number of us now in terms of the situation that we're in. How do you have a kind of a no compromising reformed theology that calls people to turn from idols to the living God? But how do we do it in a way that respects the other, 
that understands the importance of contextualization and you know he was dealing with kind of colonialism and imperialism even before those even those before those things became well fashionable to talk about them unfashionably if you, if, if you see what i mean so i think that's that's part of it and all of his students just say that you know he was just a great scholar and paul visser who's written his kind of the main biography of him a theological biography says something like he's not a he's he's not a, he's not a systematic theologian he's more a kind of a prophetic seer and thinker there's something very evocative about his writing i think the final thing i'd say is and again this may be a point of not criticism but just observation he was very influenced i think while he's alive and while he's writing psychology is really becoming a burgeoning discipline and psychoanalysis i suppose and he's very interested in the psychological, the way that he exegetes Romans 1, you know, talks about suppression, but he's very happy to talk about repression. Um, so there is something quite psychoanalytic, which again, listening to the other, there's a very something very personal about that, ex- existential almost. So I think if you add all those things together, that kind of shows the kind of posture that he has and how he conducted himself. Well, as a scholar, you've taken a lot of the ideas from J.H. Bavink and applied it into your own work, whether it was the Making Faith Magnetic book that you have and some other works that you've been doing, and kind of applying that to kind of current missiological trends and kind of cultural engagement. And one of the things that I've been struck, kind of all of the kind of Dutch Reformed tradition, but even in Bavink specifically, is that idea that God has created us in a particular way to worship. And then, it, and you've done this in your own work, but even in the classroom, when I talk about this, is we are to be full of truth and grace, kind of what we've been talking about in terms of our posture. But even kind of thinking through the idea of the secular and kind of Charles Taylor and his thesis of secular three, this age of contested belief, is that is in Taylor's words that we're haunted, that we all kind of have this idea that there is a God, this kind of transcendent realm that we know exists, but we make it an option among options. We kind of sub- try to suppress that in many ways. And I see so much parallel and connection with Bavink. So I wanted to kind of ask you, obviously, Bavink is specifically kind of focused on the relationship of Christianity and other religions, specifically like Judaism and Islam and others. But as we start to apply that into a post-Christian, I mean, there's that kind of nun category, but there's also this deep wrestling with spirituality that we see today that we didn't see in kind of a, a pre-kind of postmodern era, for a lack of a better term. And pack that a little bit for us as we kind of take some of the ideas, maybe not exactly the context, but take those ideas and that method and start to apply it to an increasingly, quote, secular age, even though I know that's loaded language. Well, the first thing I think is, as an evangelical, methodologically, if Romans 1, Acts 17, all of these passages, if you can construct a theological anthropology from them that's universal in very variegated ways, I don't deny the difference, but it must be that Romans 1, 18 to 32 applies to your thoroughly non-secular post-Christian person. So that gives you the theological anthropology. Now, if you leave it there, I mean, there's no granularity to that. There's no texture because you can't compare an Indonesian Hindu or Buddhist to your average post-secular nun. However, in some ways, the theology is the theology. And I, I think that's important methodologically. Now, what then you have to do is to say, well, how do how does this theological anthropology, the religious consciousness, how does the, how do the magnetic points manifest themselves in our in my particular moment 
And that's where I think what's interesting is, and again, you know this, Jason, about, um, you know, not only is Charles Taylor's understanding of the secular contentious, but there are some who would say, actually, this idea of disenchantment is actually not as pervasive. We're as enchanted as we've ever been. Now, I think there's, I think there's some great aspects about Taylor, but I also think, I mean, I've read recently Rodney Stark, who just says, Taylor doesn't know what he's talking about. We're all as enchanted as we ever as we ever are. What what I like to say is it's not that we're disenchanted, rather we're diff-enchanted. We're differently enchanted than we have been traditionally. And um one book that brings one study that really brings that home is Tara Isabella Burton's recent book, Strange Rites, where she talks about the nuns. And she actually says, actually, a number of those who have called themselves nuns are what she calls our spiritually remixed, you know the quantitative and qualitative research about Americans who would say they're not Christians, they don't believe in anything, and yet they believe in guardian angels, they believe, you know, I still think we are very enchanted. I don't deny that it looks different to how it used to be. So I think that's the case. I also think there's a there's a kind of an afterglow of Christianity that we have to factor in. I mean, one of the, one of the way, maybe this is Jamie Smith or um, who draws from Taylor, you know, the classic secular would be this um, comment would be Julian Barnes, who's an atheistic British journalist who wrote a book on death called Nothing to be Scared of. But he starts the book by saying, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And, you know, the the the, the numbers of kind of card carrying atheists or, or atheists is pretty small still, even in the States and in, even in the States. And I think trying to, there's this hinterland or this average of people who certainly not Christian, they they say that they're part of the nun category, but they believe all kinds of things because you can't, at the end of the day, theologically, however much you try and suppress, squeeze out knowledge of God, it's going to come back. But it, it will come back in very different ways than it has traditionally. And that's what we have to understand. We have to do the excavating. And that's where, for example, Bavink's magnetic point of the higher power my understanding, and I need to do some more thinking on this, is in Indonesia, when Bavik's there, everyone believes in a higher power. The question is, which higher power gives me connection, norm, deliverance, destiny? Here, I think, in our secular context, you have to dig out the higher power. It's only as you ask the other magnetic points questions that you go into this idea of, is there transcendence? Is there a reality? So it's almost the last thing, rather than probably in Bavik's context, it was the first thing, because everyone believes in in a, in a spiritual power or something or some god here you have to kind of because the soil is quite hard to that it has to be dug out but i think it's the hope that if this biblical exposition of human beings is correct all people do know god they're suppressing the truth they're substituting it they are worshiping other things and what we have to do creatively is we wander around the objects of worship is say what does that mean not just your Hindu or your Buddhist, but what does it mean for your average American citizen, your average British citizen who normally have got has got no time for religion, but we know what the Bible says about them. And that's where that gives us hope. It also presents us with a great challenge to dig out that kind of magnetic point thinking. Yeah, it's one of those things that it's it's fascinating to me that even though I hadn't read J.H. Boving prior to a few years ago, uh, there's this kind of deep resonance. And part of that is probably his influence through other figures, whether it's Sinkeller or others, 
But it's interesting to me because when I teach worldview analysis here at Boyce College, one of the things I teach is the kind of five concepts of a worldview. And I talk about theology kind of starting it. So theology, anthropology, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics is kind of the five concepts. One of the things I've uh, inevitably done in class is started to connect those five kind of concepts. Ronald Nash articulated this in his intro to philosophy years ago, but these five concepts uh, that have kind of ancient origins in many ways. And I'll say that every worldview, whether it's Christian, religious, or not, has that kind of has these five concepts present there. It's funny because I've started to kind of, and I need to do a lot more thinking on this, start to connect those five. I want to connect them, you know, directly to the five magnetic points. It may not be possible, but I feel that at times that there's a lot of connection and kind of overlap there. Yeah, there is, there is. And and the great thing is, and again, I I, I've been brought up with that worldview tradition, uh, how, and again, not just an not just an intellectualist understanding, but a kind of a fully orbed understanding. But what's great about the magnetic points is that Bavink wants to link them all to his exegesis of Romans one. So you know, when Paul says God has revealed His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, it's out of that's the clay out of which the magnetic points have come, which I think is great because I wonder whether sometimes. Not that it's arbitrary, but why do we de- why do we choose the worldview questions that we choose? And you know, people say, could there be more magnetic points? They could be, but I think they're pretty comprehensive and they're tethered to this exegesis, and so which is I find really um, fascinating. The other thing to say, and this is a plug for a brand new translation of a book that's just come out, an earlier book by J. H. Bavink called Personality and Worldview, because Bavink makes the distinction between, and again, I'm halfway through the book; it's only just been translated by James Eglinton again in Edinburgh, between a world vision and a worldview. And he says that everyone has a world vision, a kind of unarticulated thing about what it means to be in the world. But worldview is something that has to be worked towards. It's more conscious. It's more articulated. And I wonder whether that might, going forward, that might be a a helpful distinction to make between world vision thinking and worldview thinking. And that's just another added kind of... um, layer of um, nuance that I think will be helpful as we try and work through, you know, what's the difference between someone who I'm saying is religious, but they've never really thought about it at all. And the kind of imam who's thought about it a lot in Islam. I mean, the similarities, they're both human, they both suppress the truth, but there are obviously differences in terms of how they articulate that. And I wonder whether this kind of language will help us or this terminology will start to help us a bit more in working out the similarities and the dissimilarities. Yeah, I find that a really fascinating because I, I have the book. It's on my ever-growing to-do list and uh, reading list in many ways. But one of the things I want to do is uh, read that book. And then I've invited James back on the podcast. We've actually had him on the podcast to talk about the the critical biography that he published with Baker a couple of years ago. Fantastic biography of Bob Inc. We can link to that episode, by the way, uh, in the show notes for listeners. But I wanted to have him back on to talk about personality and worldview not only for kind of my own edification and benefit, but also I think through kind of the future of those worldview class that I teach here at Boyce College is to kind of expand on that because I think you're exactly right. There is this unarticulated sense and then there's this kind of articulated sense. And one of the things James Sire picks up when he talks about worldview is that it's conscious and unconscious. And I like that idea of like a world and life view or a world vision and this idea of a worldview. I think there's a lot of kind of parallels and similarities there that I'm interested in digging in on. Yeah, and I mean, James Sy, I mean, I was brought up on the universe next door. And then basically, James Sy has a huge conversion in Naming the Elephant, where he says, my definition of worldview was too intellectualistic and rationalistic. And he has a much more fully orbed thing. Now, again, 
what's interesting is that, as you'll know, you know, philosophers like Jamie Smith have been very kind of quite, sometimes quite scathing about worldview thinking. I think I don't I don't think we need to get rid of worldview, but it does need filling out as a, whole, a fully orbed, articulate, inarticulate, liturgical, emotional, fully rounded theological thing. But it's still a, I think it's still a very important concept because at the end of the day it is about we're made to worship and that worship has to come out somewhere and the way we answer these perennial questions is what we can call is is a worldview but yeah i think you're right to get some as i say to some of my students who don't do good essays sometimes you used a a, um, a shovel rather than a scalpel and we need some kind of scalpels don't we to try and tease out some of these differences especially in, in our context where there's so many different manifestations of what you might call religiosity or spirituality and we need to be able to deal with them um, rather than just kind of a a generalization which isn't going to help anyone i think you make a really important point there and kind of we don't have time to really unpack this per se but that kind of holistic understanding of a worldview that's something i teach and maybe it's using a different type of language or different terminology or something that that holistic approach it's not just about our intellectual beliefs but it's also about our actions, about what we do. It's about the practices and the kind of liturgical elements, which I, as a, an ethicist, want to parallel to, say, the relationship of theology and ethics, which prom- is prominent within the Dutch Reformed tradition, especially in Hermann Bavink. Uh, these are kind of the two great kind of disciplines of the Christian life of theology and ethics. And there's this beautiful kind of inextricable relationship between the two. And that's kind of something I, I like to teach my students as we frame up worldview, talk through these things it's about our beliefs, kind of intellectual assent and our actions and the things that we do in light of that. But obviously, this has kind of a, been a fun conversation. We could keep it going for sure uh, for a very long time. But one of the things I will always like to do at the end of the podcast is talk about some next resource, kind of further resources. If folks want to go a little bit deeper. Some folks, this is the first time they've heard about J.H. Bavink, probably not some of the ideas, but at least maybe his name. Others maybe have read The Church Between the Temple and the Mosque, an older edition, and encourage you to grab uh, this new edition from Westminster Seminary Press. Um, but Dan, what would you recommend as kind of some either next steps or kind of a, a biography per se, if somebody wanted to learn a little bit more about him, what are some resources that you would kind of recommend or put forth for listeners if they want to dig a little bit deeper? So the detailed, I suppose, intellectual biography is by a guy called Paul Visser. Probably he, he's a Dutch theologian. It's been translated. It's probably very difficult to find. But there's a book a few years ago edited by John Bolt called The J.H. Babink Reader, which has actually three books uh, some articles and um, Bavink's book on religious consciousness, which I think is one of the high points of his work. I'd say you can start there. And there you've got Paul Visser again, giving a long kind of introductory biography, which would be sufficient for most people. I, so I'd go there. I think um, the introduction to the science of missions still holds up really well. I mean, it's, you know, it's a little bit dated now. It's finished in, written in 1960. But some of the issues that Bavink deals with there, and if you're interested in missiology, and some of the classic missiological questions, um, then I definitely search out that, and that stayed in in print. So, religious consciousness, introduction to the science of missions, the church between temple and mosque, and then there's some lovely little devotional stuff that's, um, that has started to be translated. Um, the Riddle of Life, which is a little kind of evangelistic book that's been translated a few times. Some studies in Revelation, which are are really helpful, and then personality and worldview. Again, this early work that actually I think. Apparently, he gave to us um, some students at a technical college earlier on in his career. 
So that, that's where I, I'd start. The, the three high points, I think, are introduction to science and missions, religious consciousness, which is in the J.H. Babbitt Reader, and then this, this one, the church between temple and mosque. And we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes for listeners' sake, as well as link to that conversation with James um, on the Bob Inc., kind of Herman Bob Inc., the uncle, um, in terms of the critical biography, but also kind of this newer edition, this personality and worldview uh, that's recently come out. And I'm excited to welcome James back on the podcast here in the next few months to talk about that. But Dan, thank you so much. One, this has been a really fun and kind of uh, thrilling conversation, um, but also thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here today on the Digital Public Square. Not at all, Jason. It's great to be with you again, and uh, blessings. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dan and learn more about his work, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as stay up to date in the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.